The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. It's time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee. It's usually with Pastor Ray Greenlee and with Alexander, Gre- Alexander Greenlee, but today it's with Jim Kerwin. Hi, welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Jim Kerwin. I'm an itinerant Bible teacher. I'm with an organization called Finest of the Wheat Teaching Fellowship. And Ray and Alexandra are just taking a week away from the mic to recharge, seek the Lord, and so I'm happy to fill in for them. They have been talking a lot about prayer, about repentance, about revival. And the Lord's put something on my heart for this entire week. We're going to call the series, What's the Context? And I'd like to start that series by telling you three stories. The first one comes from Scripture, and it's a very ironic one. It's from Second Kings, chapter 22. And it's the story of how the young King Josiah, who was very young when he became king, he, was eight, he puts it into his heart, God puts it into his heart to to fix up the temple because it has been defiled by uh, idols and all the rest with the previous two kings, his father and his grandfather. You may know something about Manasseh. He was probably one of the most wicked kings that Judah ever had. And during the process of cleanup, during the process of sanctifying the temple, a remarkable thing happens. I'll start with 22.8, Second Kings 22.8. Then Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the scribe, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, who read it. Shaphan, the scribe, said to the king, came to the king and brought back word to the king and said, Your servants have emptied out the money which is found in the house and have delivered it into the hands of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Moreover, Shaphan, the scribe, told the king, saying, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read that in the presence of the king, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. That to me is a terribly ironic story because here is the house of God. Here is the word of God. And after many years, the word of God is rediscovered. Its prophecies, its warnings, its judgments, and the reading and heeding And listening to the word of God brings about a revival in Judah, brings about a a time of God's blessing and encouragement. And that's what we've been praying for here at the National Prayer Chapel, for revival to come to Washington, D.C. and our nation. But think of the irony. They have this temple and They haven't been paying heed to the word of God. It's been buried in some back corner somewhere under some dirt, sawdust, rubble, stuck in some closet. Does that sound like anybody's Bible that you know? All right, that's the first story. Second story is this. Let's see, this is 2018. So my first 
trip to Guatemala uh, as a teacher was in 2008. And in preparation for the trip, I was called by the leader of a mission organization. I went down with them twice, but I go down on my own every year now. And he said, the Guatemalans have asked that you come down and teach on the subject of hermeneutics. And I thought, hermeneutics, hot diggity dog. I love hermeneutics. I I took extra courses on that in in grad school. And before you go, hermeneutics, herma what? Hermeneutics is just the, we'll get into this in a minute, but it's just the science and art of being able to read and interpret and preach and teach the scriptures in context. And we'll talk about what what hermeneutics is more in, in a bit, in a very practical way. This isn't a theology class. I don't want to, to bore you, but I really want to motivate you, to excite you, to see what's in God's word for the Holy Spirit to open that up to you. Well, I went down to Guatemala, well, before I went, I was preparing, and then this leader called me up and he said, oh, by the way, you, uh, you're only going to have about, oh, five hours to teach in each location. Well, quick mental math, at that point I couldn't speak any Spanish, so that meant I had two and a half hours in each location. I actually got a little bit more in the end, but not much more. So I thought, oh, Lord, I have to rethink all of this. And then about a week before the trip, the leader says, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, the, the average age, educational level of the, of the pastors you're going to be speaking to is about six, sixth grade. And I thought, I just I have a rocking chair in my office, and I've just plunked down to the phone call. I said, Lord, what am I going to teach people with a sixth grade education in, in two and a half hours? And the Holy Spirit spoke so clearly to me. He just said, teach them what context means. And he showed me how to do that. And I've been teaching that. I started with a, with a foundation there, teaching that for three years in Guatemala. Um, and I've taught it subsequently in Romania and uh, in Iowa and in Peru and in Nicaragua and Honduras. And God has really used this to motivate people. Let me tell you, the Guatemalans I work with are some of the most exciting brothers to be with. They're now going out to other countries and teaching. And that, to me, is super exciting. That's 2 Timothy 2.2 in action. What I've taught to you, the same commit to faithful men who've been able to be able to teach others also. So, Think about your Bible. Think about how you do or you don't interact with it. And let's just talk about hermeneutics and context and what that is. Now, if you hear a click going on, I'm actually going through some slides, some PowerPoint slides that will eventually be available for you on the website. And you'll be able to go through this um with the slides as well. We couldn't quite get set up to do that before the broadcast today, and that's perfectly okay. The main thing is to get this information out. Now, normally when I start teaching this, I, I don't know the people I'm I'm speaking to. So I ask them, do you believe everything in the Bible is true? And of course, they're all enthusiastic, and they say, yes, absolutely. And then I say, do you believe what the scriptures say that... that at the mouth of two or three witnesses, 
everything will be established. We, we know that it's true if God says it two or three, I mean, especially true if God says it two or three times. And they're, they're on board, they're enthusiastic, they're ready to go. And then I say, all right, twice the scriptures say there is no God. No hay Dios in, in Spanish. In Psalm 14.1 and in Psalm 53.1, it says, no hay Dios. And they look at me and I say, well, if you agree that's what the scripture says and there's the double witness, then I guess that's the end of the conference. Um, any questions, any thoughts? And finally, finally, one person will pull out their Bible and flip to, actually I have one place where they didn't do this, but almost always someone will open up their Bible, usually to Psalm 14.1, and say, Hermano Diego, that's what they call me, Brother James, Hermano Diego, it doesn't say there is no God. It says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And I say, oh, you mean context makes a difference? And yes, context makes a tremendous difference as we look through the scriptures. And how do we get to the heart of the context? Why is it important? Hermeneutics, that's an interesting word. I will try not to use it too much or abuse it. But at the root of the word hermeneutics is the word Hermes. And Hermes, you may recall, was the, the Greek god who was the messenger of the gods. You say, well, you shouldn't be talking about foreign Greek gods, mythology, and so forth in regard to the scripture. Oh, wait a minute. Do you remember that time when Paul and Silas were going through what is now Turkey, and they came to this one town, and God used them to heal somebody? And so the whole town got excited, and they decided that they had been visited by the gods. So they decided that... Uh, not Silas, I'm sorry, Barnabas, that Barnabas was Zeus. And Paul must be Hermes because Hermes was always the spokesperson for the gods. So you recall they almost offered a sacrifice to them and there was it was quite a scene. Well, that idea that Hermes is the spokesperson for God is exactly the thing I want you to grab a hold of. When you are preaching, when you are teaching, when you are witnessing, when you are leading your Bible study, when you are uh, leading a soul to Jesus, teaching a Sunday school class, drawing out of God's word, you are speaking for God. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but that's indeed the case, that you're speaking for God. So it's important when you speak from God's book that you know how to rightly divide it. Hermeneutics is the branch of theology that deals with the rules and principles of, of interpreting the Bible. I was going to say Bible exegesis, but I don't want to throw too many big words at you. It's the science and the art of interpreting the Bible. Now, it's a science because it's guided by certain rules and principles, the things you have to learn to apply to your reading and, and to the text and so forth. But the application of those rules and principles, that requires experience, it requires practice and ability, and most especially the leading of the Holy Spirit. So that's why it's both an art and a science. 
Now, what are our goals when we're trying to rightly interpret the scriptures, whether we're just reading for ourselves or sharing with somebody else? We want to know exactly what God meant when he wrote or when he said what he said. We want to get as close to the original meaning as we can and understand it the way the original audience, the way the original readers understood it. And in the process of us learning that, we want to build a bridge between the scriptures and its teaching, the scripture and its time, the, the scripture and its customs and worldview, and whoever it is we're sharing with. So those are some of the things that we set out to do when we're doing hermeneutics. So why is it important? Who cares? I'm just reading my Bible and I, I'm going to pluck a verse out of here or there and say, praise God for this or that. All right. But again, if you're in any position of responsibility, and at the very least you have the responsibility to witness to people around you, then you have to be rightly dividing the word of truth. You've got to do that for your family. You've got to do that for your children. You have to do that for your wife, your husband, whoever you're ministering to. You know how 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And that word accurately handling in the Greek, it's orthotomeo. It doesn't appear anyplace else in the New Testament. And it, it means to cut a straight line. You have an orthopedist who deals with bones and so forth. If a bone gets broken, an orthopedist wants to make that thing whole and straight. And so in our cutting of the, New of the New Testament, of the Old Testament, we want to be able to cut a path straight through, just like the Roman soldier, the Roman engineers, their engineering corps, would build roads just as straight as they could. They use that same word, if they were referring to it in the Greek, the verb they would use would be orthotomeo, just laying down a straight road. All right? Now... There's even a more solemn motive if you have any responsibility for handling God's word. God is going to judge us by our faithfulness in rightly dividing the word. So we can't do it lazily. We can't do it without discipline. We can't do it without study. Listen to James 3.1. Let not many of you become teachers my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment, or the King James says, the greater condemnation. If you open your mouth to say, this is what God says, this is what his word says, this is what the Lord wants me to teach you, automatically you, you are saying, thus saith the Lord. So it behooves you to be speaking what God's speaking, not some far-out idea you heard on the internet, not some uh, half-baked notion that came to your mind. You want to be able to find, in context, what God's Word says. So, just think about that because that's not something that we're taught very much. All right, now... Sorry, I am dealing with a Mac here, and everything on a Macintosh is backwards if you use Windows or, like, like me, if you use Linux. 
So I keep losing the, the slide that I'm on, but we will, we will get there. What context? When I'm dealing with my, my pastors, my leaders in, in all of these countries, um, with, with students, many young people who aren't in ministry, boy, are they eager to get into God's Word. I mean, they are excited. They, they don't get teaching like, like this a lot, although that's growing among them. That thrills me. Two things I want you to take away from this week. If you get these two test questions right, you pass the final on Friday. The first thing is this. What's the question you always ask when you open up your Bible, whether you're looking at a, a verse or a paragraph or a chapter or an entire book? What's the question you always ask as soon as you open your Bible or even a, a verse comes to mind? It's this. What is the context? That's one of the two test questions, I'll call it. The If you walk away with that and the other thing, I will be thrilled even though you've forgotten everything else because the Holy Spirit will be able to take the two things I give you and use them for the rest of your life if you will let him. All right, that's one of the two test questions. The other one is, well, we won't get to the other one yet. Let's, talk, let's look at two definitions of context. One is the context of the text. In other words, what comes before the verse I'm looking at? What comes after? What what paragraph comes before the paragraph I'm reading? What paragraph comes after? How are these things connected? We'll see either today or later tomorrow that these verses and chapters that we have counted on, not the content, just the division into verses and chapters, tends to make us very poor in terms of our Bible understanding. We, we saw me take something out of context just early in the broadcast. There is no God. Does the Bible say that? Mm-hmm. Says it twice. Is that what it means to communicate? Absolutely not. Now, that's just an example of one line in one verse. But we do the same sort of violence to the truth oftentimes by taking a verse out of context, by taking a paragraph out of context. And as we progress through the week, what we're going to do is we'll look at a few examples of verses that means something far greater or far different once we put them in context. We'll look at uh, a problem passage and put it in context, and oh my goodness how it opens up. And we will look at some, even some chapters and see uh, when we deal with the other definition of context, which I'll get to in a minute, how God just opens it up and illumines it just because we know a few things about the context. So we want to look at the text and then the second definition is this. Context is also the influence, circumstances, and events that form the environment of a, of a scripture passage. There are other factors that we have to weigh. For instance, what's the history of the time that this was written? What, what nuances do, does the language bring that might help us to understand, including idioms? I... I've been studying Spanish now for five or six years, and there are certain ways to say things that just don't translate well back into English, and the English equivalent doesn't work going straight into Spanish. You have to know what the equivalent is and sort of get an idea. What's the purpose of the author? I hear people pulling things out of Paul oftentimes, and I'm thinking, 
Paul has in no way, he has no interest in trying to prove what you're trying to say. If you look at it in the context, he's after something entirely different. And then we won't, we won't deal with this this week, but there's another part of uh, hermeneutics, another part of context that has to do with genre. That is, what kind of a book, what kind of a passage are we reading? Is it, is it apocalyptic? You know, is it uh, prophetic imagery? Is it a narrative? Is it historical? Is it straight teaching? Is it prophetic? Is it, there's any number of ways that you could do it. For instance, if you were learning about God and you came to the passage in the psalm that says, um, you know, we, we want to hide under the shadow of God's wings. Does that mean God's a chicken? No. God has no physical parts at all. Or or Jesus, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would ga- have gathered you as a hen gathers its, its chicks, but you wouldn't. Is Jesus a chicken? No. There's this symbolic pictorial uh, imagery that, that helps us to understand a, a deeper, greater truth. So we won't deal much with genre, but there it is. At least you, you're aware that that's a part of it. Now, I don't know where you are. You might be driving. You might be at work. You might be at home. In your heart, I want you to stand up. You don't have to physically stand up. Just stand up. And everybody who's listening in your heart, I want you to stand up. This is what I do when I teach this seminar in person. All right, now I say, anybody who has never read the New Testament through at least once, sit down. And always more than half the the audience sits down, even more in America. Then I say, okay, anybody who hasn't read the entire Bible through at least once, sit down. Now these aren't new Christians by and large. These are Christians who have been around for a while. And then I just begin to up the ante. You know, how many people, if you haven't read it three times, sit down. If you haven't read it ten times, sit down. And then pretty soon there's very few people standing. Let me ask you, as I went through that list, at what point did you have to sit down? So I was finishing up grad school, I don't even remember when, a dozen years ago. I got to grad school rather late. And we had one more class. I don't remember what it was, but we were given a project that we could sort of make up on our own. Mine required me to contact a bunch of churches and find out what their teaching needs were. And I'm terrible on cold calls on the phone. I could never do a job like that. So I I made up a list of questions that I could ask these pastors I was calling. I called about three dozen of them. And I said, one of the questions I asked was, Pastor, this isn't a scientific question. I don't need a scientific answer. I just need your gut-level response. In your opinion, your gut-level response, how many of your people read through the Scriptures, entirely through the Scriptures, on a regular basis? And for the sake of making a clear definition, we'll say once every two years. What do you suppose? What do you suppose the average was? And I'll tell you. And these pastors, I think, were being really honest with me. I said, five percent was the answer that most of them gave me. Now, the average was actually skewed up to ten percent, because a few of the churches that I called were Calvary chapels. 
Now, I'm not here to promote Calvary Chapel or any other church. Actually, I better be here to promote National Prayer Chapel a little bit. But anyhow, I, I give them their due. They, by and large, teach through the scriptures about once every three years, at least if they follow uh, what Chuck Smith used to do out in Costa Mesa. I used to pastor in Costa Mesa, so I know this. So with the Calvary chapels, the averages were 20, 25, 30% of their people. Now that's still not a lot, but it was way more than the other churches. And one pastor said to me, in fact, it was a a young adults pastor. I never could get through to the senior pastor, so they finally gave me to the young adults pastor. And he was super honest. He's in charge of college and career and young marrieds at this church. Fairly big church in our area, down in, in the Chesapeake, Virginia Beach, Norfolk area. And he said, so I'll be real honest with you, he said, if you're talking about the people that I pastor, the percentage is zero. If you factor in the seniors at church, then maybe five or 10% of the entire church reads through their Bible on a regular basis. And you know, after I got done with that project, I just felt like I could kick myself because I realized that I missed the most important question I could have asked and I, I blew it. And it didn't even dawn on me to well after I was done. Here's the question I should have asked. Pastor, do you read through the scriptures on a regular basis? That is to say, cover to cover, every year, every two years. I wish I had asked that, and I wish I had known what the response would be. Actually, maybe I'm glad that they didn't. I'm glad I didn't ask the question. I'm glad they didn't answer it, because I think I would be exceedingly discouraged at least if the fruit of what I see in certain pulpits and ministries is, is any indication. When did you sit down during that poll? Now, here's the other thing. We're going to move into the other test question for the final exam. Paul in Acts twenty twenty seven says this, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God, and that word counsel in the Greek is boule, it means purpose, intention, design. Praise God for Paul wanting to share all the truth that he could with these leaders. He was speaking to the Ephesian leaders who'd come out to meet him on an island away from the mainland. My question to you is this, how can you know the whole counsel of God if you don't read the whole counsel of God. You can't give out the counsel if you don't know it, and you can't know it unless you read it. So this whole thing about the whole counsel of God, you can only know that if you are reading the whole counsel, and not just once. The Bible's a big book written by a being with an infinitely deep, wonderful, creative mind and it takes many, many readings for much of it to sink in. That's why one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why God gives us the Holy Spirit so that he can teach us and guide us into all truth. Sometimes the reason the Holy Spirit hasn't guided you into all truth is you don't even want to bother to read the book. I know people who 
come to God and they say, oh, God, I need your I need your guidance. I need your wisdom. I, I'm in this pickle and I don't know what to do. Be exceedingly thankful that I'm not the Lord because he's far more merciful, far wiser, far kinder, far more compassionate than I think I would be in this situation. If this were a Christian of long standing, um, and I were in the Lord's position, I'd say, well, you know, I gave you this book. You haven't even bothered to crack it open. Why should I think that you want to know my will now when you haven't been interested in it all the rest of this time? So praise God, he's far more merciful than that. But you know, I have now been a Christian for 50 years. I was saved July 31st, 1968 in Newport Beach, California, Andy Scott, if you are out there, I don't know why you would be in the Washington, D.C. area, but if you're out there, you led me to Jesus that night 50 years ago, 50 years and about three weeks ago. And I have been following him faithfully ever since then. Thank you for your faithfulness to me. We can't know the whole context. We can't know God's whole will if we don't know the Bible. And this is the point. The great context is the entire Bible. You want to understand the passage you're reading, you want to understand the verse you're reading, the chapter you're reading, the ultimate context is the entire Bible. If you're not reading that, you can only get so much out of whatever you're reading because you don't see how it connects to the whole. So that's why at the end of this week on Friday, I'm going to... I'm going to have a, a stone-cold altar call. And by what I mean is that a cold-blooded altar call. It's not going to be an emotional uh, appeal. It's not going to try to reach your, you know, your heartstrings and say, Oh, yes, I should be reading the Bible. I want you to pray about this challenge between now and Friday. And I think what we'll do Friday is we'll have the producer open up the phone lines, and if you're willing to make a commitment to read the scriptures through on a regular basis, and I usually say cover to cover, but I want to put a footnote on that, but if you're willing to read through the scriptures, devote yourself to do this on a regular basis, I'm going to have, or, or if you're doing it already, that's wonderful. I want to know that too, but if you're not, I want you to call in on Friday, having prayed, having counted the cost, because there's a cost involved. Now, it's not a huge cost, and I'll show you some ways to do it as, as we go through, but there is a discipline in reading through the Bible cover to cover. And, you know, it's, it's funny. As soon as you say the word discipline nowadays among Christians, what you get back is <gasps> legalism. Discipline is not legalism. Paul says, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a disciplined mind. And shock of shock, horror of horrors, the word discipline and the word disciple are joined at the hip at the same root. If you're a disciple, you're disciplined. I'm so glad that in the studio here that there's not a soundboard where I can add little sounds during the uh, during the broadcast because 
when people find out, oh my goodness, a disciple is supposed to be disciplined, I would be sorely tempted to play a quick clip from Gomer Pyle. You may remember that character from the Andy Griffith show or Gomer Pyle, USMC, the way he always used to say, surprise, surprise, surprise. Yes, if you're a Christian, working for Jesus, given totally to him, you're disciplined and you will make fine, count the cost to read through the scriptures, not just once, but on a regular basis. So I said there would be a footnote on that, and it's this. Don't literally read cover to cover. I mean, I want you to read everything within the covers, but if you start at Genesis and try to get all the way through to Revelation, I guarantee that, especially if it's your first time through, you will bog down somewhere in Leviticus, I know, because that's what I did. Actually, I started reading before I got saved, and by the time I was in the middle of Leviticus, I just threw my hands up and said, <laughs> I just... I don't understand what any of this is all about. And so I, I closed the book. Actually, I think I closed it right around Leviticus 15 and 16, which is a place that we will come back to this week. You'll see how wonderful and powerful that particular passage is, or two of the longest chapters in the Torah. But yes, there's some discipline involved, which is why I want you to count the cost. It's something you know you should be doing, but it's one of those things, that, well, yeah, I, I know, but I'm so busy and this and that. And the devil will give you all sorts of excuses. And those excuses have worked up to now. Now that you're listening to me, I'm speaking to your conscience. I'm speaking the word of the Lord. I'm speaking what the Holy Spirit wants me to say to you. Seek ye out the book of the Lord and read and read. There are a lot of advantages to reading through the scriptures. You know, it's not just some, oh, I got to do it, take up my cross and read my Bible every day. Oh, that's, that's nothing like that. If you are born again, if you want to follow Jesus, there is so much in this book that is so encouraging, so convicting, so challenging, so uplifting, so revealing of, of God, of of truth of you, of others around you. It's amazing. You know, if you read through once a year, you're never more than six months away from any passage. You can hide the treasures of the Holy Spirit, uh, the whole, of the scriptures that the Holy Spirit can use it later. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. Um, you know, I, I hope that you haven't had your eye on some uh, souped up you know, tricked out car or some big luxury vehicle. But if you're like most people, if you went into the bank and said, hey, you know, I want to buy a, a new Mercedes-Benz so-and-so. I want to take all the cash out of the bank that I have in my savings account. I'm just going to buy one cash. And uh, the teller would look up your account and then burst into laughter Bend, bend over double, finally grab the teller next to her and say, this guy, he, he wants to withdraw all of his funds to, to buy a Mercedes-Benz, and he's got $117.52. So what's that got to do with scripture reading? It's this. You are always expecting to make a withdrawal when you made no deposits. And there's a, a system that goes on here 
you hide God's word in your heart, and then the Holy Spirit can bring it out later for guidance, for for wisdom, for things that he wants to open up to you. If you have nothing put in there, I won't say God won't speak to you. I won't say, I, I can't speak that. God can do whatever he want, wants, but you will find that Generally speaking, you you come up empty. I've been in ministry now for 47 years. I've done a lot of counseling. I've done a lot of observing of Christians. And I can tell you this, there's nearly a one-to-one correspondence between people who read their Bibles regularly and people who hear from God. And if you don't hear from God, there's a high probability that you are not reading because those two things go hand in hand. Now, two other things. I've told you that I'm learning Spanish, and a lot of times I need a a memory hook when I learn a Spanish vocabulary. And there was a word that I just couldn't fix in my brain for some reason. It was almacenar. And what it means is to, to store, to warehouse something. And so if I get a word like that, sometimes I'll just pull the card out of the deck, so to speak, and I'll, I'll look at it and say, now, what? What would help me to process this? Al-Nasenar, although I'm certain this isn't what they meant when they put the word together, it's made up of two words. Alma, which is soul, and Senar, which is to eat dinner. And I thought, that's it. That's not only it. That is spiritual truth there. That is spiritual truth. I want to store the the, the dinner of my soul in my heart. By eating God's word, almasenar. If you want to be led by God, you have to start putting the word of God in. If you need to make huge withdrawals on your account, you need to have huge deposits. And that takes a while. It takes daily savings, as it were, daily reading. There's one other thing, too. My youngest daughter used to be a bank teller. And one day, just because I wanted to learn about her job. I was thinking of some questions I could put to her. And I said, Mary Beth, do you ever, how often do you see counterfeit bills? <laughs> and she laughed. She said, Dad, I, I see counterfeit bills every day. I said, no. She said, yeah, every day. Every every teller sees f- fake money every day. I said, well, how do you spot it? She said, by and large, we don't see it. We feel it. I said, what do you mean? She said, we count out money in 20, 40, 68, 100, 120, 40, 60, 80, 200. She said, and we feel real money all day long. It's just there. And when you, your fingers, which are so used to touching real money, touch a, a counterfeit bill, you just stop and you reverse the count and you find the one that felt funny then I don't know how they confirm it from there on. They probably have some kind of a scanner or whatever. But before their eyes see it, before the scanner sees it, their fingers know it because they handle the real thing all the time. How about you? Do you handle the real thing? Do you handle the Word of God in context, in truth, enough so that if a counterfeit came across your way, you would know it, you would sense it in your spirit, before you even understood what the problem is? Because that's one of the things that reading through the scriptures gives you a leg up on. 
You're touching truth all the time. As soon as something feels wrong, it feels wrong because you've been handling the real thing all that time, every day. And the Holy Spirit will help you. There's a funny poem that was written by... And, and today's just introduction. And we are going to get on to the, the more interesting stuff tomorrow, but I had to lay this foundation in order to put the superstructure up. I don't know if you ever heard of John Godfrey Sachs. He was a, an Englishman who lived in the 19th century, and he wrote a poem called The Blind Men and the Elephant. And maybe you encounter that in school sometime. It's, it's interesting because it's how many of us, it, it sort of exposes how many of us approach the scriptures. We don't pass the elephant test. The story in the poem, and I won't bother to read it to you, is that um, six blind men are brought to their first encounter with, a, with a, an elephant. And I think in the... In the poem, they're actually Hindus, but that's all right. We're going to make them Christians. And they're coming up against the, the elephant of the scriptures. But they're blind, remember. So it's only what they experience in a particular area that helps them to draw their conclusion. So the first one walks with his hands out, and he bumps into the side of the elephant. And he feels all over the, the elephant, and he says, Oh, I understand now. The elephant is like, it's like a wall. It's huge. It's strong. Well, another fellow's up front, and he is holding his hands up high, and he, he grabs the, the tusk and sees how it comes to a point, and he says, A wall? Are you out of your mind? The elephant is like a spear. It's, it's long. It's got a pointed end. Well, there's another person standing next to him, and as the elephant wraps his trunk around this fellow's arm, this other blind man says, Oh, no, no, you, you are both wrong. The elephant is like a giant snake. It's like a, like a boa constrictor. It's huge. Well, another fellow bumps into the, the leg, and he wraps his arms around it, and he says, Oh, my, I know what an elephant's like. An elephant is like a tree trunk. This is a huge tree trunk. Fifth guy, he feels air moving near him. So he goes to the source of the moving air and he reaches up and he and he gets the elephant's ear and he says, oh no, the elephant's like, it's like a, a, a big leaf on a tree. It's like a big palm leaf. And there's always one fellow that manages to get in the wrong position and he's at the back and he grabs the elephant's tail and he says, no, you're all wrong. You're all wrong. The elephant is like a rope. Well, now, all of them had something of the truth, but nobody could see the entire elephant. And so they came away with true conclusions that were, in the whole, completely false because they were taking what they learned out of context. We come to the scriptures with prejudices with presuppositions we aren't in the habit of reading the bible the entire bible we don't read and reread books we basically let somebody else do it we become terribly lazy you know if we're somewhat interested in the scripture okay i go i listen to the pastor preach for 20 25 minutes on sunday and maybe i listen to a, a christian broadcast now and then that is not the same that is that is like reading about food instead of eating that's like like 
reading about somebody else and how they invest and you never putting any money in the bank. So we it's like we wear these dark glasses of things that we've thought, things that our culture puts on us where we think, well, it must be like it is here in the 21st century. Nothing of the sort. Our minds have been crippled. We're programmed to think in terms of artificial divisions, chapters, and verses. I said, well, I thought chapters and verses were a good thing. Well, get to that in a minute. But while we're still still in the wake of these blind men and the elephant, I want to ask you this question. How do you eat an elephant, an entire elephant? Well, if you think about it, the answer is one bite at a time. My pastors and leaders and some of these folks in ministry in Latin America with their sixth grade education, now some of them have more education, some of them have less. By the way, if you don't know this, let me be the first to tell you, education has nothing to do with intelligence. I know very intelligent people who don't have a lot of education. I know people with a lot of education who, to me, don't seem very intelligent, at least not very wise. So I'm not in any way putting them down because of their lack of education. But they look at a book. Let's see, how many pages are in my Bible here? There's got to be, oh, almost 400 pages in the New Testament and close to, well, there's like 1,300 pages in the Old Testament. So call it 1,600 pages. And... These folks who have a challenge reading, they look and they say, how am I ever going to read 1,600 pages in, in a year? And the answer is one bite at a time. One bite at a time. You don't look at the scripture and say, oh my goodness, I've got to read the whole thing. You do, you should. What you say is, all right, Lord, I can start out. You know, if you've never finished the New Testament, do you realize there's only 260 chapters in the New Testament? If you read one chapter a day, you could finish in less than nine months. Just one chapter a day. Five minutes, ten if you're a really slow reader. There aren't very many long chapters in the New Testament. And you'd get through once. Same thing with the Old Testament. Basically, if you read three chapters a day, you would be through the Old Testament in just about a year, a little under a year. That's not a lot. Four chapters, three in the old, one in the new, you're done. And on your way through to a second time, you do it one bite at a time. Now, those of you who are reading regularly, I want to encourage you to think about marinating in certain books. You know, you take meat and you put it in some sort of a a brine or solution or your secret sauce and you just let it sit. We need to do that with parts of God's Word that, that the Holy Spirit is challenging us on. Just to sit. And, you know, one of the most amazing things to me that, that happened in my study of the Bible happened about 30 years ago, I think. Met a brother from England come, brother by the name of George North. Make a long story short, he challenged the church. First, he challenged them to read First John 20 times. 25 times, and then 50 times. And before he left, he challenged me to read it 100 times. I took him up on the challenge thinking, oh, well, it's, it's five chapters. How long will that take? It took me six months, in addition to my regular reading, to read through First John. But 
that time of marinating in First John revolutionized my ministry. It revolutionized how I share the gospel. It revolutionized many things just because I marinated in that. So, we have to come to this willing to, to get involved and to, to marinate and just to begin to go through and get familiar with it. Now, maybe you're thinking, you know, I, I tried going through the Old Testament once and it was just, I just lost my way. You know what? I remember I was in, where was it? Honduras. I was in Yoro, in El Estado de Yoro. And this one sister said, Hermano Diego, I, I tried reading through the Old Testament and I just didn't understand. And I said, sister, <laughs> I, I, I completely, I, I, my heart goes out to you because I've read through the Old Testament now 60 times. And there's still lots of things that I don't understand, but that doesn't stop me from reading. And bless the Lord, he's opened up way, way more than uh, I understood at the beginning. And every time I go through, there's something new. Those of you who are regular readers, you'll know what I mean when I say this. Every time you go through, there are new verses. I have the exact same Bible, but somehow the Holy Spirit manages to inject verses that were never there, passages that were never there, and certainly make connections that were never there. So I want you to not give up, be discouraged. There will be parts that you don't understand. That's okay. Let me just tell you one story about the Holy Spirit drawing something out since we're coming to a close here. When I was three years old in the Lord, this is when, back when we used to ride dinosaurs to church, um, I was leading a Bible study and a brother came up to me afterwards and he said, where was that verse in, in Hosea that you quoted from? Well, I hadn't touched Hosea with a 10-foot pole. I mean, I'd read it Let's see, at that point, I'd been a Christian for about three years, so I'd read through three times because I'd been reading through the Bible at least once a year, every year. And he said, where's that verse in Hosea? I said, I didn't quote anything from Hosea. There's, there's nothing here in my notes from Hosea. He said, but you did. And I said, I'm really sorry, but I didn't. And he got angry at me. And it turns out he had some right to be angry because I went back and I listened to the tape Yes, children, if you can believe it, we used to record messages on these little pieces of plastic with magnetic tape inside. They were called cassettes. Anyhow, I went back and I listened to the cassettes. And lo and behold, I quoted two verses from Hosea that I didn't even know I knew. And I said, Lord, how did that happen? And he said, you put it in and I took it out when I needed it to bless that man. And I thought, wow. So you're putting in not just for you. You know, that's a pretty selfish reason. It's a good reason, but it's, it, ultimately it's a self-centered reason, at least, if not selfish, to read through the scriptures just for you. You're putting that in so that God can make withdrawals from that account to be able to bless others. Now, time's drawing to a close today. So what we're talking about is the subject of What's the context? We've talked a little bit about context and we've talked about two things that we want to get out of the week. Learning how to ask the question, what's the context of what I'm reading here? And then we also want to be praying. Those of you who aren't reading through the scriptures on a regular basis, I want you to be praying, counting the cost so that 
if and when you're ready, if you're under conviction, if God's saying, Jim is right, you need to be doing this, I will bless you if you'll do it. Friday is the day. Friday is the day on our show notes that we will have links to Bible reading charts that you can use to help you through. But I can't do the reading for you. You can't put the, the Bible under your, under your pillow and expect to absorb it somehow while you sleep at night. Paul has a very interesting benediction in Acts chapter 20, where we were reading earlier. And as he releases the Ephesian elders to go back to their time of ministry, he says to them, Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So I am commending you to God and to the word of his grace, to the scriptures which he wants to use to bless you, which he wants to use to equip you, which he wants to use to train you and mold you and to prepare you for the coming revival. But you have to be involved in the context, especially the context of the entire Bible. God bless you. May he put this hunger in your heart, and we will talk again tomorrow. Present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, with great joy. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to Present you blameless before the presence of his glory.